50 and verse 20. As you may remember from our time in Genesis, what we have in this last chapter, chapter 50, is the aftermath of what took place once Jacob, Israel, had died. He was the father of 12 sons. One of those sons, Joseph, has been used by God in a mighty way to rescue this family from famine and from death. But the path Joseph took to become the second most powerful man in the ancient world was a strange one. Joseph's path was one that had many twists and many turns. And it all began with his brothers selling him into slavery. His own brothers were jealous of him. They abused him. They threw him in a cistern, a pit. And ultimately, they sold him as a slave. They told their own father that Joseph was dead. And they kept the truth about Joseph a secret for a very long time. But when we come to verse 17 of Genesis 50, a great change has taken place in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. It was a change that we tracked over 13 chapters as God used Joseph and their great sin against him to humble them and to bring these brothers to salvation. So that when we come to this chapter, Joseph's brothers are now servants of the true God. In this passage, the brothers are anxious that their father's death might now mean that Joseph will finally turn against them. They're afraid that even though Joseph has expressed forgiveness towards them for what they did to him, they're afraid that it may have been all for show that Joseph didn't want to upset the heart of his father. But now that Jacob's out of the picture, now that dear old dad is gone, maybe now Joseph will get his revenge for what these brothers did to him. So they're going to Joseph to ask one more time for his forgiveness. But they send a messenger ahead of them. And in verses 17 and 18, they tell the messenger, say to Joseph... Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And then we read, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And so we have Joseph grieving his father's death. Joseph perhaps grieving that his brothers do not yet understand that they are truly forgiven by him. But he responds to them this way. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now we've already seen a lot in this little series of sermons. 
We've seen that our God is unsearchably great and supremely glorious. We've seen that he delights in himself and that all of creation and history is God expressing his delight in himself and bringing men and angels to delight in him with him. We saw this morning that God is triune, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that the Father is doing all that he does to honor the Son. The Son is doing all that he does to honor the Father. There is this incredible, mysterious, but wonderful intra-Trinitarian relationship. And all of creation and history exists because of the love that is within the Godhead. You and I are part of an amazing plan in which Father and Son are delighting in the goodness, the power, the wisdom, the purity, the righteousness, the mercy, the patience of one another. And then comes the question, what about evil? If God is so good, and he's working this plan for good purposes, why does evil exist? How does evil fit into the purpose of everything? Where is, where, why is evil here at all? And some people would say that this is the biggest question that we could ask. Because the problem of evil is one that has riddled the minds of philosophers and theologians, but also farmers and merchants and all people for a long time. The problem of evil is often considered the greatest question of all, and the problem of evil, why it does evil exist, has led many to believe that there cannot be a good God in heaven. When evil is so prevalent on this earth, we've mentioned Bart Ehrman's name many times here at our church partly because Bart Ehrman has had such an influence on so many people in our day, and partly because he's not too far away from us. He is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at UNC Chapel Hill. Ehrman embraced Christianity as a teenager. He he called himself a born-again believer, and he was passionate about his faith. He went to Moody Bible Institute. Got a three-year diploma from Moody Bible Institute. Then went on to Wheaton University, a highly respected, conservative, evangelical university. And then for his undergraduate, he went and studied under Bruce Metzger at Princeton. And I don't know if you know the name Bruce Metzger, but before his death, Metzger was the leading scholar of biblical manuscripts alive, period. But something happened to Ehrman that turned him into the agnostic that he is today. He's not just agnostic. He he has written many books, and he travels all around the country sharing his arguments why Christianity is false, why Christianity should not be believed. So what happened to Bart Ehrman? Well, it was the problem of evil. He couldn't find a solution. Listen to what he says. He, he describes it. Suffering increasingly became a problem for me in my faith. How can one explain all the pain and misery in the world if God, the creator and redeemer of all, is sovereign over it? 
exercising his will both on the grand scheme and in the daily workings of our lives. Why, I asked, is there such rampant starvation in the world? Why are there droughts, epidemics, hurricanes, and earthquakes? If God answers prayer, why didn't he answer the prayers of the faithful Jews during the Holocaust? Or of the faithful Christians who also suffered torment and death at the hands of the Nazis? If God is concerned to answer my little prayers about my everyday life, why didn't he answer my and others' big prayers when millions were being slaughtered by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia? Or when a mudslide killed 30,000 Colombians in their sleep in a matter of minutes? When disasters of all kinds caused by humans and by nature happened in the world? He says, I read widely in the matter. I read philosophers, theologians, biblical scholars, great literary figures and popular authors from Plato to Sartre, from Apuleius to Dostoevsky, from the Apostle Paul to Henry Newen, from Shakespeare to T.S. Eliot to Archibald MacLeish, from C.S. Lewis, with whom I was very taken, to Harold Kushner, to Elie Wiesel. And eventually, while still a Christian thinker, I came to believe that God himself is deeply concerned with suffering and intimately involved in it. The Christian message for me at the time was that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God to us humans and that in Jesus we can see how God deals with the world and relates to it. He relates to it, I thought, not by conquering it, but by suffering for it. Jesus was not set on a throne in Jerusalem to rule over the kingdom of God. He was crucified by the Romans, suffering a painful, excruciating, and humiliating death for us. What is God like? He is a God who suffers. The way he deals with suffering is by suffering both for us and alongside us. And that was my view for many years. And I still consider it a powerful theological view, and it would be a view that I would still hold on to if I were still a Christian. But I'm not. He says, about nine or ten years ago, I came to realize that I simply no longer believed the Christian message. A large part of my movement away from the faith was driven by my concern for suffering. I simply no longer could hold to the view which I took to be essential to the Christian faith, that God was active in the world, and that he answered prayer, and that he intervened on behalf of his faithful, that he brought salvation in the past, and that in the future, eventually in the coming eschaton, he would set to rights all that was wrong, that he would vindicate his name and his people and bring in a good kingdom, either at our deaths or here on earth in a future utopian existence. He says, we live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds. Every minute, there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of an oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans, 
Where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop. Where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects. And where is God? To say that he will eventually make right of all this wrong seems to me now to be pure wishful thinking. So that's how Airman left the faith. And I simply ask you, what do you think? When we look at the evil in this world and the pain in this world, is believing in a good God nothing more than wishful thinking? Uh, By becoming an agnostic, Ehrman has basically embraced the view that all of the suffering in this world is meaningless. There is no purpose behind it. There is no meaning to it. People just live and then die, and some have a tougher go of it than others, and that's just it. There's no fairness to it. There's no justice to it. It's, It's random. It's natural. There's no God who is a part of it. There is no God in heaven hearing our prayers. That's the problem of evil. What does the Bible say about this? Does it give us any help in figuring out how in the world such tragedies could exist and such wickedness could exist as it does if this world really is the handiwork of a good God? Well, I believe the Bible does give us some help. And so my goal tonight is to try and bring the Bible to bear on this question I have six points, six points I'm going to make, and I hope by the end you'll see that God's purpose of bringing us into greater joy in him is actually furthered and helped because evil exists. So what does the Bible say about evil? Here we go. Number one, evil exists. The Bible says that evil exists. The Bible does not shy away in the least from acknowledging the reality of suffering and pain and disaster and calamity, as well as moral abuse, cruelty, and the story of Joseph. The Bible does not hide things from us. It is clear. The cruelty, the abuse that Joseph experienced, the the natural disaster of the, the famine that comes upon the land. We live in a day in which some claim that good and evil are not real concepts. That good and evil are just relative ideas. That we think we're the good guys and ISIS is evil. But if we were fighting for ISIS, we would think we're the good guys and that those Americans are, are evil. So you see, good and evil, it just all depends on your perspective. It's, it's not absolute. And yet, according to the Bible, good and evil are absolute. Good and evil are fixed things. What God has declared to be evil is evil, regardless of anybody else's perspective. If something is evil in the sight of the Lord, then it is evil in every way that matters. We will be judged on the last day, not based on what we call evil, but based on what God calls evil. John 5, 28, 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So judgment will be based on good and evil and God's definitions of those words. 
God has given us his moral law to help us know good and evil. God has not left us in the dark having to try and figure out what good and evil are. First, he put something of the moral law in every human heart. There is something innate in every human being. As people created in the image of God, there is a sense of right and a sense of wrong. But the word of God goes further. We've been given the Ten Commandments. We've been given the revealed moral law of God to show us what good and evil are. And what has been revealed is that none of us can keep the commands. And that all of us are in fact evil and have evil bound up in our hearts by nature. Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We would rather not embrace God's word on what is good and evil because if we accept what God says about good and evil, we are immediately convicted. The moment we say, you know what, what God says is good and evil, is good and evil, that very moment we get a guilty conscience. Because according to the mirror of God's law, we are all evil. Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Not out of a bad upbringing. Not out of bad circumstances. Out of the heart. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Because there is sin within us. The Bible says that evil not only exists, but that natural man is evil. There is none good. None. No, not one. And of course, Ehrman, he struggled not just with with cruelty and evil acts and transgressions of the law of God, but even suffering from natural disasters and, and calamities. And the Bible acknowledges that as well. The Bible's filled with famines and earthquakes and floods and great disasters. And the Bible teaches that these things are not evil themselves. These things are the consequences of evil. Disaster and calamity in this world are here because of a curse. These things are the consequences of man's sin. You can study again Romans 8, 20 to 22 about the groaning of creation to help make sense of some of that. So the Bible was utterly realistic in acknowledging the reality of evil and calamity. Number two, number two. The Bible teaches us that God does not approve of evil. Yes, evil exists, and yes, God is sovereign. He wrote the story, but God does not approve of evil. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Genesis 6, verse 5, in the days of Noah, 
uh, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And how did God respond to the evil he saw in man? Did he approve of man's wickedness? Did he reward man's wickedness? No. He sent a global flood in which all of humanity, save one family, was utterly destroyed, as well as even the creatures of the land over which men were to have dominion. There can be no doubt from Scripture that God does not approve of evil. In our day, in which we talk about hating the sin and loving the sinner, there's probably no more offensive verse in the Bible than Psalm 11.5. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. I'm the one who loves violence. God so hates evil that he also hates the one who does evil. Now there is a sense in which he loves them too. But there is a sense in which he hates the wicked. We should also point out that one of the big points we've been seeing in this study is that God loves himself and delights in himself. But what is wickedness and evil except but ungodliness? Sin and evil are simply the opposite of God and his character. They are the opposite of that in which he delights. When, when God hates sin, he's simply hating that which is the opposite of himself. You cannot love patience and impatience. Right? To love one is to dislove the other. Dislove is to hate the other. Right? You, you can't love mercy and cruelty. The moment you love one, you hate the other. And so it is with God. Because he loves himself, because he delights in himself, he by nature hates all that oppose to himself. He hates sin. He does not approve of sin. Number three. The Bible teaches us that evil is part of God's decrees. Evil is part of God's decrees. In other words, evil is as much ordained by God as every other part of history. Sin isn't something that surprised God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God wasn't suddenly taken off guard. Jesus' coming and the plan of redemption was not God's plan B reaction to something he did not expect, which messed up his world. No. Evil was always a part of God's plan for this passing world. Let's take the example right in front of us. Genesis 50 verse 20 says about the evil act of Joseph's brothers in abusing him and selling him into slavery. Joseph says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that word meant is a word of intention. It means that the evil actions of Joseph's brothers were part of a plan in which God had a purpose. He had an intention in what they were doing. There was something that God meant through the brothers doing this. They meant evil. They committed evil, but God had a good purpose, namely to save their very lives and their families. 
It's even stronger in Psalm 105.17. We're talking about God. The verse says, God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now, did you hear that? God had sent a man ahead of them. How did God send Joseph? In chains, through the sins of his brothers. But even as the brothers were committing this evil act, they were fulfilling the very plan and will of God. God was sending a man ahead of them. Surely, there is no greater example of God decreeing what he hates than God decreeing the death of his own son. Jesus was wrongfully and cruelly beaten and murdered. We're told in the Gospels that this was out of jealousy and envy on the part of the religious leaders. There was greed at play in the heart of Judas. The devil himself was working behind the scenes to get Jesus on the cross. You had all of these people with cruel intentions, even the devil himself, working to murder Jesus. It was the vilest sin ever committed. And yet what does Acts 4, 27 and 28 say? you got Christians in Jerusalem. They're praying. They're looking back to just a few weeks before when Jesus was put on the cross, and they pray for truly in this city. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Every aspect of the death of Jesus Christ, the greatest evil this world has ever known, was a part of God's decree and his plan. Not only is evil a part of God's decrees, but the consequences of evil, including calamity and natural disasters and those things, they are part of God's decrees. Think about the story of Job. In Job, you have a natural disaster, a storm that kills all his children. You also have moral evil as these foreigners come in and slaughter his shepherds and their flocks. You have disease. You have these boils that come on Job's skin and they're, they're running with pus. And how does, Jay, how does Job respond? You know how he responds. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord giveth. The Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not Satan taketh away, not the storms taketh away, not these foreigners taketh away. Yes, those things were all the immediate causes, but ultimately Job knew if this has happened, it's because my God had decreed for it to happen. We could walk through scores of Scripture proving this point. I'll mention just one more. Isaiah 45, verse 7. Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God takes credit, ultimate credit, for all that has been decreed. So evil exists, and God does not approve of evil, and yet God decrees evil. That brings us to our fourth point, namely that God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. Now, wait a minute, Justin. You just, you just 
proved from Scripture that evil is part of God's decrees. If that doesn't make him the author of Scripture, how do we make sense of that? First of all, put understanding it aside for a moment and just realize that the Bible does teach that God is not the author of, of, of evil. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Uh, the very nature of evil and sin is confusion and chaos. But 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Uh, we already read 1 John 1.5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. It's important to recognize that evil is most often compared to darkness in the pages of Scripture. So evil isn't really something that is created any more than God could create darkness. Because what is darkness? Darkness is the absence of light. Evil is the absence of of goodness. And so this helps us understand how God can ordain that evil be without actually committing evil himself. And again, as with every sermon in this series, Jonathan Edwards comes and helps us. And I'm glad he does. And once again, he gives us the analogy of the sun, S-U-N, the sun. He says, the sun by its very nature brings light and warmth. However, when the sun sets and its influence is lessened, darker and colder temperatures begin to set in. So we know what we're talking about here in October. Sun goes down, less light, less heat. Everything gets darker. Everything gets colder. To quote Edwards, he says, if the sun were the proper cause of cold and darkness, it would be the fountain of these things, just as it is the fountain of light and heat. But of course, the sun is not the cause of both light and darkness. The sun is not the cause of both heat and, and coldness. When the sun's influence is felt, there is light and there is heat. When the sun's influence is lessened, there is coolness, there is darkness. Edwards argues this is how it is with God. At times... He chooses to make his influence felt in greater power, and the fruit of that is life and godliness and goodness. But any time God begins to remove his influence, evil necessarily sets in, because evil is simply the absence of God's influence. Evil isn't a thing. Evil is the absence of a thing. Evil is the absence of God's gracious influence. Think about it this way. God has the power, if he chose to use it, to keep every one of us in this room from ever sinning again. Our hearts are in the hands of God. He could make us pure and blameless this very moment, and there would never be another evil desire within any of us. Don't you wish he'd do it? <laughs> At times, God comes upon our lives in greater power, and we become more holy. And we have purer desires. And at times, God removes some of his influence from our lives. And our hearts grow hard. 
and we begin to care less about the things of God. Psalm 81.12, God says, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. This this is the language the Bible uses when talking about how God uh, removes some of his gracious influence. Basically, God says, I I give them over to their own wicked ways. He, He chooses to hold back some measure of his grace so that people go into further darkness. Now, why would God ever choose to do that? Why would God ever choose to remove some of his gracious influence from anyone? Before we answer that question, let me give you our fifth point, namely, that God sets the bounds of every evil act. God sets the bounds of every evil act. In other words, God overrules all evil, He sets the limits as far as he will allow evil to go. We are sinful in this room, but we are not as sinful as we could be. There is common grace that God extends to all the people of this world where he he harbors in evil so that it only goes so far. Like Gandalf, right, before the the demon Balrog in Lord of the Rings, and Gandalf says, you shall not pass. So God says to evil, you can go this far and no further. Job's a great example where we see Satan having to ask permission to do harm and to do evil to Job. And we see that God grants permission, but he even says to Satan, you may go this far and no further. You may not take his life. Okay, and so our final point, our sixth point. This is the answer to why God would ever choose to remove his gracious influence and to permit evil to happen. This is the answer to why he would include evil in his plan and in his decrees. And here it is. God works through evil to reveal good and glorious attributes of himself that would otherwise never be seen or savored or praised. So let me say it again. God works through evil to reveal good and glorious attributes of himself that would otherwise never be seen nor savored nor praised. What is the purpose of everything? The purpose of everything is shared joy in God. God is delighting in himself. He's bringing angels and redeemed men to share in his joy. And the more we see of God, the more our joy increases. Can you imagine not knowing that our God is a God of forgiveness? Can you imagine how deficient how weaker your view of God would be if you did not know that he's a God of mercy or even a God of justice or a God of grace. You see, without evil, we would never have known these aspects of God. Without evil as a temporary part of God's plan, there would be no song Amazing Grace. 
Without evil as a temporary part of God's eternal plan, there would be no old rugged cross. There would be no man of sorrows willing to lay down his life for others. We know the glory of God better and deeper and richer and we're able to love him more because evil exists. And we've seen how God has responded to it. Here's the truth. Evil exists for goodness sake. Can you handle that? Evil exists for goodness sake. Evil exists that the goodness of God may be better seen and appreciated. Just as a diamond is set against a black backdrop in order for the beauty of the diamond to shine, so God has set his goodness against the backdrop of evil so that we can see his goodness all the more. Jonathan Edwards. And we're almost done. Jonathan Edwards. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of his glory should shine forth. That Every beauty should be proportionably effulgent. That is, that every part of God should have its place in being expressed and displayed. That the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. It would not be good. It would not be right if we only knew God as this and didn't know him as this. If, if, if we only knew a part of his attributes and not these other attributes that give us the better, the fuller picture. And thus it is necessary, Edward says, that God's awful majesty, his authority, and dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed. So that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of his goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. Do you hear what he's saying? Without evil, there are aspects of God that we would hardly know. We, we wouldn't even be able to make sense of him if we didn't know evil. If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness and hatred of sin or in showing any preference in his providence of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from. However much happiness he bestowed, his goodness would not be so much prized and admired. Last part, he says, so evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. Okay? So evil is necessary for our highest happiness. We get more joy 
because evil exists, because we get to see parts of God we otherwise would have never seen. And when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, and evil is completely gone, evil is a thing of the past, we will still remember what sin is and what evil was, and therefore we will be able to forever know what it is to be objects of God's mercy and his grace. We will have deeper joy. God will have greater glory because evil existed. So for God's glory and for your joy, evil exists. Genesis 50 verse 20, God meant it for good. Okay, I'll stop there. Let's pray.